1: brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl
0: Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Emily Perkins, welcome to Better Reading. Hi,
2: thanks for having me. (laughs) You're a newbie. (laughs) and a newbie to podcasts is that right yeah yeah i'm a big listener of podcasts but i don't know that i've been on one no well there you go it's going to be exciting emily is the
0: author of a prize-winning collection of short stories not her real name and four novels including novel about my wife and The forests. Her work for stage and screen includes co-writing the film adaptation of Eleanor Catton's novel, The Rehearsal, an adaptation of Ibsen's A Doll's House and the original play, The Maid. Her latest novel, Lioness, is a brave, exuberant and illuminating exploration of identity that exposes the chasm between what one believes and how one actually lives, which is my constant dilemma.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think mine too. I mean... Big engine for me writing the book really was trying to examine that difference between your value system and your daily life. We probably all exist on a bit of a continuum as to, you know, how well that matches up. You could probably chart it differently for all of us at different times. And, you know, I think I certainly know people who are better at living by their values than I consider I am. You know, I'm talking about something, say, as simple as veganism. Mm. Yeah, I am not a vegan, but I, you know, I completely understand the moral position and think it's probably the correct one to take. The only thing with uh, veganism,
0: yeah, can I just make a comment about that? Because I'm not a vegan either, but I'll give friends everything has to be their way. So when they come to your place, everything has to be vegan. And when you go over there, you're going to be eating. Yeah, <laughs> but, but their way. It's always
2: their way. It's because they're right. They're
0: right. Okay. <laughs> no, because I don't ripe. want oat milk in my coffee. I want real oh, milk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I know what you're saying. Yeah. But
2: this is the thing, isn't it? There's our kind of desires. There's what we're used to. I was really interested with the book of, in terms of um, to, to look at some of the barriers to us living more closely to our values and you know I don't think they're always barriers of difficulty sometimes they're very often they're barriers of comfort and ease but obviously with everything the way it is at the moment and with what's happening with the climate and that kind of thing I I think that these conversations are ones we're having to have with ourselves more and more often but Mm -hmm. look the book isn't a preachy book by any means it's quite Uh, you know, it's perhaps the opposite of that. Perhaps I'm just seeking to kind of understand, understand how difficult it is to align Mm. with. You know, many years ago, I worked for this um, company, Maya actually,
0: long, long time ago as a book buyer there. And uh, they had this fantastic program where they would, you know, try and rehabilitate people back into the workforce, people that had been out of it for a long time. And they would partner them with a mentor. And I got partnered with this young woman. She was probably in her mid twenties. And she had been homeless for the best part of her life, right? So it was really not showing her just how to work, but things like, you know, talking to her about paying with a card of which she'd never had an FPOS card or she'd never taken money out out of an automatic teller and she'd never, you know, there was so much that was new to her. And at the end of the program, she said to me, you're not as free as you think you are.
2: Wow. Mm. What do you think she meant
0: by that? Well, we're tied up in a system that we can't get out of, is yeah. how I read it. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is a system.
2: For sure. For mm. sure. And it's, you know, the old age-old thing of the two goldfish swimming along and they see the bigger goldfish who says to them, how's the water? And one turns to the other and says, what's water? I mean, that's, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, it, not it? Yeah, that's fantastic. And I do think that's this, that's one of the things that fiction can do and can do um again not in necessarily uh the form of a you know it's different from a manifesto or it's different from a political statement oh
0: absolutely
2: or even an opinion piece in any way it's just exploring what the water is and how entertaining at the same time yeah yeah hopefully and hopefully connecting because You know, I feel like we're all in this together. That's how I feel. I mean, I've got this very privileged central character who's the narrator of the book. She is somebody who I think it would be really easy just to poke a stick at and um, say, oh, you know, she's bad by dint of all the blind privilege she's got in her life but I wasn't really interested in doing that I I really wanted more to try and get under the skin of her life and and look at the way she does things why she does them that way because I feel like we're all in it together and there are ways that um I that she's yeah. really similar to me I mean yes you know, like my things when I Yeah, yeah. It makes me remember,
0: I don't know if I've spoken this on the podcast, but very recently I was in hospital, Emily, and it was my first time. And, you know, I was really sick. And my family were pushing for me to be in a private ward, but I didn't want to be, well, I, I was in a, not a private ward, private room. Anyway, they managed to get one night and it was awful and lonely and I was in my own head and I had to get out of there. And I went into a ward of four Well, with three others and we live in silos, you know. I mean, we all do it. I feel as though if you were to ask me to describe myself and you're probably the same, I would say that I have empathy, I'm interested in politics, I engaged, you know, social justice, you name it. I mean, I'm trying always to do the right thing by people and by the way we live. However, what I saw in that hospital there were people I would never have met in, yeah. in my work, in my home life, you know, and there were a lot of it, there was a lot of hardship, you know, It's a, it was a hospital in the central business district. So people from all walks of life and because I was there for such a long time and people were coming in just for one night's day or two nights day, I met a lot of people and in the end, I couldn't wait to meet the next person to hear their story. And I just, I had to kind of remind myself, and I hadn't thought about that for a long time, of how privileged I am.
2: Yeah, because I think privilege takes so many different forms, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the way in which, say, money, yep. money silos you, you know, mm-hmm. it buys you more and more, it buys you privacy, it buys you space, it buys you time, it buys absolutely. you absolutely. It buys you the private room or whatever. Mm. But there's also, yeah, say the privilege of having a job that means you don't have a commute or a, a job that, I don't know. You, you can
0: work from home. A lot of people you can't work, home. work from you home. Can, you don't have yeah. to
2: punch the clock. You can pick it up and put it down. And, um, yeah, so I, I think that's all stuff that often keeps us, keeps us separate from one another. I've just been travelling a lot and, you know, I don't want to come up with these sort of aphorisms but you know another one which is when you're in a traffic jam and there's sometimes the signs on the side of the road that says you know you're not in traffic you are traffic and um -hmm. I keep on thinking that in these really crowded places you know I'd go to art galleries and they'd just be jam-packed with people and you know I was be with my husband or with friends and it's very tempting to go, oh, look at all these bloody tourists. And then you're like, hang on, I am one of these people. Like, there's no difference between us. You know, we're all here. Actually, I've got to say, this is another total aside, but the really wonderful thing about that was just how many people want to look at art, how many people want to engage with art, want to engage with not just historical art, but also contemporary art. And just being in that kind of massive human need for art was really wonderful. I really enjoyed it.
0: That's just triggered a story that I've never told. I don't know if I've ever repeated this, but years ago, maybe 20, 15 years ago, I went to Beirut. I was really lucky a friend of mine gave me because my parents are Lebanese and my mother particularly still has family, you know, brothers and sisters over there. And I went to Beirut. And before I did the family thing, I decided to stay in Beirut because once you get into family, you can't get out. Right? Right. <laughs> so I decided to stay on my own in Beirut for a couple of nights before they mm. all encroached on me. And I hired a driver privilege. But I said to him that I'm interested in art, right? I mean, this is how naive I was, right? I said to him, I, I would really like to see some art. So I'd like to have some good food. I'd, and the first gallery he took me to, and art is everywhere in Beirut, but it was such a shock, the brutality of this photography exhibition that he took me to. And it was Palestinians and the atrocities. And it was... A photo exhibition of Palestinians in refugee camps, right? And I was so distressed and so shocked by it. And when I came back and got into the car, he said to me, without me having said anything, because he knew I was shocked, what did you expect?
2: Mm? Yeah. Mm?
0: But, you know, and this is art lives in war. Yeah, yeah, it does. Like, there's, you know, there's so much. I mean, this is a way that people can express themselves,
2: right? Oh, that's, that's, that sounds like a yeah, really yeah,
0: found experience. So that was my experience, and you know, I feel as though with that trip, and and with any travel, and you'll know this having travelled, you come back a different person. If you're really looking, if you're really looking, then you come back, and you, you, you know, you see how. <laughs> other one people of live.
2: We do
0: it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I just a couple of months ago came back from Mexico. Gosh, that was an eye
2: opener. I'd love to go to Mexico.
0: Highly <laughs> recommend it. Highly recommend it. Okay. So I want to start. So you've been writing for a while. Tell me how it all started. Tell me where you grew up and how it is that you came to writing.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I grew up in, in New Zealand in Auckland. I was born in Christchurch, but My parents moved quickly to Auckland when I was a baby and I grew up there and then I was a teenager in Wellington. So I sort of bounced around different New Zealand cities. But I was an early reader. I think sometimes it just happens. Like one of my kids was like that too. It's almost like you don't get taught to read. You just sort of pick it up. And Mm. um, And you can't stop it. And you can't stop it. And then it it was an addiction for me, a complete compulsion. I just... I loved stories. I loved being lost in stories. I read things and read them again and again. And I I almost felt like, you know, when I think back, I almost feel like I kind of was a book in a way Mm. when I was little. You know, I wasn't the classic. um, You know, there was a lot of emphasis at my school on sport and uh, all those sorts of things that weren't my bag. So I had reading. And it sort of seemed to follow from that, that I was interested in writing and doing, yeah, the, this thing that I loved so much is um, engaging with as, as a reader. I wanted to try and express myself in that way with writing too. Did you so think it
0: was doable?
2: Okay. As a career, um, I didn't, really didn't cross my mind. And then mm. you know, I was also, a you know, really into drama and youth theatre and those sorts of things. And I got cast in a TV show when I was about 16. So I left school quite young to do Mm -hmm. that. And then I went to drama school after that. And then I was really struggling to get work. And I just, yeah, I must have been about 22. And I just thought 21, 22, I just thought, no, this isn't for me. I I couldn't cope with the business of having somebody else say when you got to do something you know I mean because
0: it's storytelling in a way but you're telling somebody else's story
2: yeah and and just I suppose I could have devised my own work I think that they're much better at training um students you know or giving students the skills to do that these days so I had been writing all this time but just little piecemeal bits and bobs I never finished anything But I knew people who'd done this writing, creative writing course at Victoria University in Wellington, which was at the time run by, um, established and run by the poet Bill Manhire. And you had to apply to get in. Um, So I managed to cobble enough together to put an application together and was lucky enough to get in. And then I had. To write a short story, I think, as part of that course, and that was the first thing I had published. So, it kind of went from there.
0: So, the first thing you wrote got published.
2: Yeah, the first Show thing. Show off. Um, <laughs> I know it was pretty. It was pretty amazing. Like I was, it's, I couldn't. I really couldn't believe it. And it was published in a literary journal here. And then the other thing that happened after that was there was a writer's festival here and a British publisher called Peter Strauss, who was then publisher at Picador, came to Wellington. Quite famously so. Yeah. (laughs) A publisher called Peter Strauss. He's brilliant. He's he's great. And he's, I mean, he's an agent now, but he was that kind of publisher who was going out and looking for new work and not just sitting down and waiting for things to be sent to him by agents. So he was out here in the, editor who put my story in a journal you know put it in front of him and and then we started a kind of correspondence after that which is what led to my first book so it was pretty a lot of good fortune and I think also having a couple of champions you know that's something that gets underestimated in mm. the world say of writing but maybe in the arts in general is you're really lucky for you know it's really good fortune to have people who get your work and who are keen to back you. And you know, the publishing world is full of people who want, you know, who love reading, who love writing. Who who love story. Who love stories. I mean it's it's why people I wanna I
0: wanna touch on that. That's a really good point because I often say to people when they want advice about being published, it's not the first publisher that makes you an offer that you go with. There has to be a fit, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of you have to have a connection. You have to feel like you want to work with this publisher and the publisher wants to work with the author because it's a creative partnership in the end, isn't it? And it's, there's a lot of work that's, involved and there's a lot of toing and froing, but also too that these people become champions of your work not just externally but even within the publishing house you know yeah. from
2: very early on that has to be apparent and you know because um and things change over the years as well so I've always had my publishers have been based in the UK but I moved when uh, Peter left Picador and then The woman who was my agent, Alexandra Pringle, went to Bloomsbury as a publisher. So I ended up going there with my book novel about my wife, and the forests. And then Alexandra, who's a sort of publishing legend as well, has recently retired. So, you know, I was really hoping to continue the relationship with Bloomsbury, but of course she wasn't acquiring anything. So it was a little bit, I mean, not exactly like starting over, but certainly knowing Mm -hmm. that there are meetings being had where your work is one of several that are under discussion of are they going to take this book on or not? And yeah, really hoping, was <laughs> really hoping that they would. And for um, somebody that's never been rejected, probably. <laughs> well, it's funny, I know. It was, I was just thinking that when you asked me about that first story and I feel like um, I definitely had been rejected. I've definitely sent short stories to places that have Okay, been-
0: all right. <laughs> <Yeah>. okay.
1: <laughs> Ready to pop the question?
2: Another thing that I've done before, you know, differently than with this book, is I've sold books before they've been completed. So, you know, on the basis of a sample and an outline and that kind of thing. So it was kind of different trying to, you know, like going to Bloomsbury with this book, you know, basically complete and and good. I think that's a good way around to do things if you can. Mm.
0: And there's different ways of doing things. I want to go back to that that first story that was published. Did you get a sense then that it was good enough? Did you, like it was so, so early in your career. How did you perceive yourself as a writer?
2: Yeah, I had no idea mm. and really no idea. And I remember being in the writing class and one of the, you know, because we we're being workshop, we we're workshopping each other and talking about mm. each other's work and putting some pages in that would, become part of this story and one of the other students saying that they didn't like something it was like a point of view shift or something like that and I just went oh yeah yeah right okay you know of course and Bill and the teacher was just like hang on you don't have to uh, take on everything that somebody says you don't have to agree with the first thing that somebody says about your work you just wait like just to get the feedback and then wait and think about it so yeah, look, I think when you have that first early publication, it's a sort of wonderful thing that you can never, ever repeat. You're mm-hmm. in the dark. You've got no idea what mm-hmm. your writing looks like out as part of, you know, the, the world of books or um, you've got no idea how it's going to connect with readers. I was absolutely clueless. I didn't know, you know, I just didn't even know how to conduct myself like. Yeah. As a writer. How oh, is yeah, a writer? Where, a, where in the am morning? writer <laughs> meant to be like, am I meant to be yeah. um, all sorts of nonsense that
0: I Because it is a, a vague, it's not a vague occupation, but I think it is a vague o- occupation when you're starting out. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I know established writers who still can't write author on their yeah, know, on their forms, they, yeah. they just don't do it. You know, even though they're up to their fourth or the fifth book, or it is yeah. one of those occupations oh, yeah. where people can doubt themselves for a long time.
2: I think I, so, and and also there is certainly when I was, you know, first being published like in the mid to late nineties, there was that funny thing of being a young woman in the world then too. Like, what did that mean? What did that look like? If you had a, any sort of public interaction or engagement it was the kind of the age of pe- were people being bad girls or, you know, their whole sort of laddie idea. I mean, I just didn't even know. I sort of felt like, oh, should I be constructing some kind of persona? I mean, I didn't and couldn't. I was yeah. just only capable of being myself. But I do remember really worrying about it that maybe yeah, yeah. I wasn't getting it right.
0: I want to go back just to that comment that I picked up that you said about reading your work in front of other students and people saying that they didn't, you know, maybe you should have done this or maybe you should have done that. That's kind of what fiction and reading is all about. Like we talk about that a lot here at Better Reading because there's five of us that work here, right? And one person can love a book and another person not necessarily. And I think that that's a-okay where kind of hard on people that don't agree with us but it's subjective reading is so subjective doesn't it you bring you bring all your own experience you bring your own mood into it it's whatever you were doing that day influences what you read that night
2: completely and I think that's something that when you're writing and putting something out in the world, it just pays to remember it as much as you possibly can. Yes. You know, and of course you want the most, you know, the biggest number of people possible to connect with your work because it's a two-way connection. Like Absolutely. You, you kind of, that, that's, I guess, one of my main reasons for publishing anything. But at the same time, you have to accept that you can't control it. And there are all kinds of factors. Mm. And, but that's a sort of big life thing, isn't it? And actually, it's a little bit like that in the book. Like the my character in the book is, you know, she's a self-described sort of people pleaser. Like she wants, she'd like to live in a world where everybody likes her and thinks she's fabulous. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> so I want to be like her. But the sooner we accept that yeah. we're not ever yeah. going to, yeah. um, the better we'll be off probably.
0: So you've been a writer for a long time. Do you approach it like every day as, okay, I'm going to sit at my desk and I'm going to write for four hours or I'm going to sit at my desk and I'm going to write 1,000 words? or?
2: I do sometimes you? do. I, yeah. I do once I've got going. I I mean, I'm a terrible procrastinator. and Who isn't? Oh, yeah. Well, I guess yeah, people I really admire, I suppose, maybe – I've got better discipline than I do. But I feel like I kind of need to get a swirl of energy and a swirl of material together to then have it generate its own momentum and then have me, yeah, sort of happily at the desk every day doing a certain amount of it. And I'm just, I guess I'm talking to you at a stage where I'm still trying to build up that swirl at the moment on my next project. It's different with something like short stories, which I've been writing again recently as well, because, you know, you really can just try to get a short story down and a series of concentrated bursts, and that's great fun.
0: Although Um, I always think with short stories, and I've never interviewed a short story exclusively writer on this podcast, but for me, I love them. They are, particularly during COVID, I had this scene where I couldn't concentrate mm because I was so worried about everything. I couldn't concentrate to finish a whole fiction book. So I really took to short stories. And I felt that how difficult that must be to tell me a story so succinctly, you know, in so few words, but that I am completely I'm completely immersed. I'm there. I'm yeah, that's that's not an easy skill.
2: Mm. It's um it's funny, it's a form that I have gone deeply immersed in and then spent long years not really engaging with at all and I've loved being back in the mode of short stories particularly because of that deep immersion that you're talking about, like Mm. you just need to plunge right in, like there's no mucking around, there's no throat clearing, there's no setting up, it's just like boom, you're in it Mm. and that I love and of course I, I really love writing novels as well but the demands are so different And with a novel, I think you're kind of aware constantly of the weight of decisions and the consequences of the decisions that you're making all the time. You're going to have Mm. to live with these for (laughs) a very Mm. sustained narrative. And there's something just so delightful about being in a different mode with short stories. Mm. Um, Mm. Yeah, but in terms of a writing practice, I know when I am avoiding it and that's just, you know, it's just hopeless. You've just got to, like, push through yeah. that and get back in and be prepared for it to feel a bit awkward for a while before mm. it gets, you get a kind of flow going. Mm.
0: Have you done anything else outside of writing in your career?
2: Well, I've done sort of mostly writing-related things. So yeah. in the UK, I lived there for 11 years, and I had a visa that was a writer's visa. Um, that don't exist anymore, but... <laughs> that I had to earn my money from writing. So I wrote columns, like newspaper columns, and I did. I started some teaching there. And then when we moved back to New Zealand in 2005, I started teaching at tertiary institutions in Auckland and then in Wellington. I moved here to Wellington for a job at um, Victoria University teaching creative writing here. Mm. I did that for eight years and then left there at the end of 2020 to write full-time.
0: Oh, wow. So it's quite recent, really. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: I just was really struggling to get this book finished while I had the teaching job. I mean, I loved the job. It was wonderful. I had great students and colleagues, but there was something very creatively rewarding about being immersed in the student work that, you know, made it seem less urgent to do my own, I think. Um, Your head was full of other people's stories.
0: Do you know, I heard this somewhere recently, socially, I was with friends and a lot of my friends largely were in the business and they were talking about writing courses and how many of them there are and how they've become more popular. And one of them said, she's not sure, she's an editor, she said she's not sure that you could teach someone how to write. Yeah, I
2: think in a sort of, black and white sense. I think I agree with her, but I don't, but I think there are lots and lots of um, other layers to it. So yeah. the course I was teaching on, you know, you had to apply to get in. It was mm-hmm. quite competitive. So I felt like we always had people who we'd already encountered on the page in the room. Um, I, it was a master's program, 10 people that, yeah, all coming in with quite a degree of talent. And then often the stuff that you're you're talking about craft and technique and how things work and why they work the way they work. And you're talking about, you know, you're kind of teaching people to read like writers and to be able to identify yeah, why something is good as well as why mm. something might not be. And then also how to kind of really connect themselves with their work. So they're making it the strongest thing it can be. I It was a very sort of personal job. It was very mm. intimate mm. and I love that about it. But I also think that I had people who could really write come through my course who have not gone on to write necessarily. And in a way, I think the ability to write is, you know, perhaps it's just more more common in the population than we think. And actually, whether or not you get on and finish a book and publish a book and that sort of thing often depends on other things as well as your ability. Well,
0: it's a different journey entirely, isn't it? Yeah, the journey of getting to be published. I mean, that's that's a job in itself.
2: But I think if someone's not interested in reading, they probably—I don't know how much how engaging their writing is going to be.
0: Mm. Um, people often—and I was only asked this the other night. People often ask me if I'm interested in writing because oh. I speak to writers. Yeah. I was like, Never. Um, no, I'm not. But I think because one of the reasons I I don't do it is one because I know how difficult it is because I talk to people like yourself. But the other reason is that I am such a consumer of story and even though you would tell me precisely how you wrote your book and, you know, say we had a conversation about it, I need to read it without you in it. You Mm. know, Mm. I consume stories where I am, just the reader. I don't see any editorial. I don't see anything that's cut out. I don't see a novel that's gone from ninety thousand words to sixty thousand. I don't. It's the same as movies. I don't. You know, people say, "Oh, did you see the camera?" And the camera came in for me.
2: No, 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 no. I am just there for the story. That's brilliant, and that's that's great, and that's what you know. Writers need things <laughs> like this. That's right. Um, because you know, I always think. If a book can get me to the point where I'm forgetting about how it's put together and how yes. it's then, yeah, that's really wonderful. And I guess I kind of, I do look for that as a reader as well. But and
0: so you're aware of that when you're writing. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. It's often the case that you are trying to work out why something is having the effect on you that it's having. Yeah. Like you said before, there's everything that the reader, everything that you're bringing to it on that day, which is also a collaboration with the work and that is what makes your reading experience.
0: Mm. We're out of time Emily. Um oh. what a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you so um, much.
2: You're it. a beautiful you. writer,
0: Emily oh, Perkins. Thank you. thank you. If you'd like more information about better reading, follow us
1: on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.